Hey, it's Peter here with MyFSHD. Hope sitting here in the high Sierras down in Carson City, Nevada. I'm looking out at snow in the mountains, snow in the backyard. Um, I actually love it, you know, but there's still still uh, leaves on the trees. Not a, not a great combo, but uh, beautiful fall. Yeah, late fall day. About to set our clocks back, which I hate uh, tonight. But I don't know if you all do that everywhere in the world, but we're going to, let's see. Well, I guess they move. They they make it so you go home in the dark no matter what. But you get up, it's a little bit lighter. But uh, we also got uh, we also got a election coming up this coming week in uh, in the U.S. And you know we um, kind of gets to one of the things that uh, first thing we're going to talk about today. And you know <laughs> we're all in the U.S. looking forward to the election being over because when you live in a state like Nevada, um, which you know. It's called a swing state, can go either way. Um, uh, we tend to hold our politicians accountable for their votes, and we're pretty hard to fool. So, uh, you constantly barrage with uh, uh, ads every oh man, you can't turn on the radio, the TV, nothing, just ad after ad after ad, just telling you how horrible the other person is. No one wants to tell you how good, <laughs> no one likes to talk about what they did. Uh, but you know, a lot of spin, you really have a hard time. You really have to, you know, get in and see how did people vote? Um, you have to understand the policies, not just the fancy names put on policies. You have to see, did the policies put forward actually do what they were intended to do? Oftentimes it's pretty clear they were never going to do what they were named to do, but anyway, so a lot of spin. So, um, and actually it was funny. There's just in the news, they said, well, our president just realized that people lie on Twitter. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, when the lies help you get elected, you don't seem to mind. But uh, but we're going to talk about a little bit of spin because I finally got my um, eyes on the Fulcrum open label extension. Um, well, I, I guess I haven't seen the data. I've seen a summary of the data, which evidently was presented. And sometimes you could make the case that what people present or what people choose not to present or how things are presented might tell you how they how how they feel about the data. Now, just to be clear, you know I wear a lot of hats. I am speaking as an academic, the academic <laughs> Dr. Jones, um, uh, who's you know worked in FSHD for twenty years, and uh, just going to evaluate the science, at least what I've seen, what's been presented. Uh, and, uh, as a scientist, because that's why you guys come here, right? I know you guys don't come here to listen to all my yapping, um, and my little commentaries and snide remarks. You come because you want to learn something about FSHD, some science, right? So there was a, a, a real, um, puff piece, uh, cheerleading puff piece put out, um, uh, talking about, uh, uh, Um, I think it says just steady improvement seen in data from open label extension study Uh, with a couple of graphs. This is on the uh, FSHD Society website, and a couple of y'all send it all to me because I don't really go there for information. Um, But it was uh, sent to me. And I've been looking. It's not on the Fulcrum website. And, I, you know, they used to, you know, I don't know what companies do. They used to post presentations on their website. And some companies post. You can find all their posters they presented at meetings. You can find uh pdfs or slide presents and stuff you know and uh, they, they seem to have stopped doing that um which again wh- you know whatever there's nothing wrong with that in fact i used to think it was odd that they, i was actually really ple- pleased that um when uh when i could go to a company website and find 
their poster that they presented publicly. I mean, it's publicly put it out there. You'd think you'd be, be sharing it. But, um, but there are these two graphs uh, on reachable workspace slopes of annualized change um, in uh, the uh, open label extension versus the original um, uh, study. Now, just so we're all clear what's, what's going on. Now, um, the, the phase two study right, that was done was, uh, you know, half uh, placebo and half people were on uh, lesmopamon. Of course, it was randomized, double blind. So the doctor didn't know, the evaluators didn't know, the, the participants didn't know. Nobody knows until the data is collected and then it's unblinded and assigned. That is the proper way to do the, a trial. And so that was, um, that was a 48-week trial. And, um, and, and so that was called Redux 4, okay, and that is complete. Okay, and you can find the results in clinicaltrials.gov. Okay, under under the trial. So, what's an open label extension? We've mentioned it before, and so this is actually a really great thing um, that uh, many trials have. And what this means is that after the end of the study period, okay, uh, everybody, regardless of whether you're a placebo or on the drug gets to be on the drug and it's open label because they know they're on the drug or, or, or the, you know, therapeutic or whatever the intervention is, you get it. Okay. Um, antisense, I'm not sure if we're going to call it a drug. That's really a, a biologic. And so, um, and the avidity trial coming up has, you know, they say in there, there's an open label extension afterwards. So what this means, this is really cool because what it means is that you have no control over whether you're going to be on the drug or on placebo, that's just randomly assigned, and and nobody knows who who gets it. You can't you can't ask me to get you on it. You can't ask your doctor to give you the good stuff. Um, well, you can you can ask, but they got no idea what they're doing um, in that respect. So, uh, but you know that if you're in the trial, you'll be one of the people at the end of the trial period that will be on the drug, assuming there are no adverse events and the drug um, is still safe. Okay, so that's what an open label extension study is. And so they, uh, the Redux 4 ended, you know, long enough ago that now they have another 48 weeks to analyze um, the open label extension. Okay. And that's the data that was um, recently put. Now there's a, something else going on, which is there's the phase three trial, right? So the phase three trial is still enrolling people and people ask me um, about getting into that. Um, you can see that as the phase three reach trial. And again, you can learn about that on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, they're still enrolling people at, I don't know, it looked like about 18 sites around the U.S., several sites in Europe, um, possibly sites in Australia. And uh, I can't, anyway, there's, there's sites all over the place listed. There are a number of different countries in Europe um, and uh, still enrolling and still getting online. Okay, but that's not what this is about. This is about what's going on, the open label extension, right? And so their conclusion is that lasmapamod can um, provide meaningful benefits. That's the, the quote um, in here from someone from Fulcrum. And so, so um, as they say, I don't know how, just how old I am. Before ESPN, which is a sports station here, there was something called the George Michael Sports Machine. And, you know, he'd give his lead in, and they'd say, let's go to the videotape. And he'd hit the button, and the sports machine would fire up, and you got to see sports highlights, which was really cool. Because back in those days, I mean, you, got, you only got a couple minutes at the end of the evening news. You, you had to wait till the newspaper came before you knew who won the big game. But George Michael was the first guy to really get it, have a whole show on sports highlights. And now, of course, we have 24-hour sports highlights and 
Holy cow. You can't get away from it. Professional pickleball leagues now. They're covered live on sports. Anyway, I kind of, I digress as I do. So we're going to go to the figures and see what we got here. So I got two figures in front of me, um, two uh, graphs. And uh, what they're showing is uh, the um, percent change in reachable workspace. Okay, so reachable workspace, if you don't know what that is, so that's basically you're sitting in a chair and you're kind of, it's, it's a, um, uh, you're, it's all about your arms. Okay. And it's divided into, oddly enough, five quadrants, which is interesting um, because, you know, um, because there's one behind you and, um, you know, where can you actually, how far can you reach, right, with your arms? And so that's going to be uh, the range of motion, okay, because upper body range of motion. So first off, this tells you in order to be in the Las Mapamad trials, you need to be able to raise your arms enough to have some reachable workspace, right? You have to be able to measure decline in reachable workspace. So if you already can't really raise your arms up enough, you may not be, be in there. And this is also, this again, this is all about upper body um, function, not lower body or anything. They're only measuring two things. One of the interesting things that came out of the um, original phase two study was that even though they measured like 20 different things, there were all these <laughs> reachable workspaces. This is the only one where they actually could measure um, any sort of a beneficial change in the drug group. Okay, so that's why this was chosen for um, the phase three study, kind of retrofitting your study for what uh, what actually seems to show it works. Um, in the phase two study, the, the endpoint for success was uh, whether or not you actually shut down ducts for pathogenic gene expression. Okay, just to show we're clear. Um, uh, it did not, at least they were not able to detect that. So they're moving their endpoint. And, um, but this is a functional endpoint. That's always good for the FDA to say, did you see any physical improvement? Okay. So one thing to keep in mind um, on this reachable workspace, uh, you could get changes in reachable workspace uh, based on uh, nutrition and anti antioxidant stuff and, um, and uh, exercise. Maybe you go home and practice reachable workspace or you are excited that you are in a trial. And so, you know, this could be, you could actually alter reachable workspace, um, well, without the drug. Okay. But, you know, they have a placebo and I'm pretty sure they tell everyone just continue life as you normally would and not change. Now, I know not everybody listens, but um, you're supposed to continue on as you normally do. Um, and they have a placebo to control for these sorts of things. So what's going on? So here they have, um, as I understand it, um, there were uh, 77 participants completed the 48-week uh, study. And um, then of those 76, it put into the open label. So you, you have the option to go into the open label. You don't have to go into the open label. And um, of those 76, uh, 74 are still on treatment. So the first thing this tells you is that at least, it, you know, whether it works or not, it's, it appears to be pretty safe, Okay. Uh, so, um, there were, uh, no treatment related, serious adverse events. These are called SAEs or treatment emergent adverse events, T E A E's. Okay. And so nobody basically discontinued the drug because they had some sort of bad reaction or anything bad happened. So it's safe, pretty safe. Okay. So that's actually really important because honestly, after looking at that, I have no idea if it's working or not. Okay. So what do they got? So if you look at, um, as I understand it, 
they're only looking at 30 people in this graph, which means, so not everybody's in the graph, <laughs> okay? Because we already know that uh, 77 people should be in the graph and they have 30 people in placebo and 30 people that um, were on lesmopamod. And those are, so 60 people are covered in the graphs. And so 17 people are unaccounted for. That's first thing that's a little bit unusual. Second thing from a scientific standpoint that's a little bit unusual is there's no error bars and no data points or anything. And this is just a summary of all the data. So the summary is if you were on lesmopamod from day one all the way through week 96, the group as a whole um, in the first 48 weeks showed a 0.77% decline, um, but then only showed a 0.18, well, they actually were improved by 0.18% then in the following um, 48 weeks. So really, so, you know, around a 1% uh, decline in reachable workspace. Now, this is the group, this is all 30 people together. Okay, and this is where I kind of have the problem, right? I'm not, I, I'm confused. As a scientist reviewing this, if this came to me as a paper, <clears throat> well, first off, no, no scientist worth their weight in anything um, would send this out for review because no one would accept this in a journal, um, a peer-reviewed journal, because you need to have error bar. We need to see the data points because essentially they're saying no one got any worse while on the drug, okay? And so, and which sounds great. But what we don't know of these 30 people, of which some, some number are not accounted for, um, is this a case of 15 people got better? Maybe 15 people showed a 5% improvement and 15 people showed a 5% decline. And that averages out that the whole group basically didn't change. Is that what's going on? Is it a case of um, 10 people showed a 10% improvement and 20 people showed a 20% decline and that averages out to the zero? Did 5% show a huge improvement and 25, you know, and then 25 people showed a huge decline? Is that what's going on? I mean, we don't actually know. I mean, that's why you have error bars and data points. You'd really want to see what's going on with each individual. Are there a few hyper responders that are driving this? Or is it really true that pretty much everybody on this stayed about the same? We can't tell. No idea. Um, now, what about placebo? Well, in the placebo group, from and it looks like there's only two data points. There's 0 0.0 and 0.48, day 48, or it's 48 weeks, and then 96 weeks. And I guess that, I think that actually is true, but I don't know that for sure, but there's only those data. So we don't really know what's going on in between. It sure would be interesting because I got to tell you, on Reachable Workspace, I told you, I was actually talking to my student, Ben, last night. Um, ben, you know, is my graduate student um, working on our pig model and some small molecule stuff, doing some good good work. Um, you know, he's got uh, FSHD and, uh, you know, upper body is affected. You can still get stuff off shelves, but it's not the easiest things. I asked him, I said, what do you think about Reachable Workspace? He's like, yeah, you know. It's like, I have good days and bad days. The temperature of the room makes a difference. Time of day makes a difference. What kind of days having makes a difference. You know, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not so easy. It's all over the place just on basically what's going on today with him. So uh, anyway, so what about placebo? Well, placebo showed a decline of 9.96% between 0 to 48 weeks in reachable workspace. So about a 10% decline, which actually is pretty significant. You're saying in one year, well, it's not a year. Sorry, 48, we got to get my... <laughs> My math right. In 48 weeks, people that were on placebo de decreased 
um, 48, uh, 10% in their reachable workspace um, capacity, okay? Then, and again, we don't really know. Is this a case? Um, well, first, and so now remember, this is all measured in reachable workspace against where you started. So well, however it's scored, it's your starting point and the, at zero, week zero, and then where you are at week 48. So that doesn't mean that everybody's got the same amount of reachable workspace. It means that you're, so depending, you know, there could be, you could imagine a case of some people based on where they are in reachable, which muscles are affected and such could have predisposed for decline or maybe more less likely to decline. We don't know. We know how much variability there is, but anyway, it seemed, you know, again, it was randomized. So that should control for this 30 people. We're not sure again, what happened to the missing people that are not reported in this study. Um, but whatever. Um, but again, the data points would be kind of interesting to see. Did everybody decrease 10% in reachable workspace? Did some people on placebo improve? So how is that possible, right? You look at this, you say, nobody on placebo improved. Well, we don't know that. You know, 10% decline. There could be people that stayed the same. There could be some people could have improved 10% um, on placebo and done just fine. Um, maybe some people who are very low on the reachable. And in fact, that would actually be important data to have and to present would be, um, how does, um, where did you start? You know, whatever, I, I don't know what the scale, maybe there's a scale of one to 10 on reachable workspace and 10, you have full mobility um, of your arms and zero, you, you can't, you can't even do that assay. Where are you? And did the people that are in the eight range um, maintain theirs uh, or did the people in the two range, man, you know, so, I mean, you, know, you kind of get what I'm getting at, that it would be interesting to know, right, to subdivide things into the say, say is there a subgroup? First off, we want to see the data on each individual. And then is there a subgroup that you could put up to say, hey, these, you know, the more muscle you started with, the more likely you were to maintain it. And the less muscle you started with, the more likely you were to lose it. Or does it not matter? Does everybody just flatline, you know, and, and go out? Well, no way to know. Okay. And now this is, um, I should mention briefly, this is broken into two, you have two arms. You have a dominant arm and a non-dominant arm. So if you're right-handed, it would be your dominant arm. So I'm talking about your dominant arm total. Okay. And the second thing about this, I guess I need to mention is this is a reachable workspace with a weight. So you have a little weight. I'm pretty sure they had to, that's how much they had to tweak it in order to see a benefit or any good effect. Um, so there's a little, there's a weight that you're, you're kind of holding while you're doing the reachable workspace with either your right arm or, well, well, it is your right or left arm, whether you're dominant or non-dominant arm. If you're left-handed, your dominant arm is your left hand. All right. So that's what's going on. And um, so they saw this 10% decline in placebo. And then at 48 weeks, you get on the drug. Now you're on the open label extension. Now you know. So for the first 48 weeks, you have no idea if you're on the drug or not. And actually, if you got on Facebook, you looked around, people were saying, I think I'm on the drug. I'm not on the drug. Now, everyone decides whether they're not on the drug or not because um, how they feel. That's just how people are. All right. So then you got a 4% increase, okay, in functionality in the next 48 weeks. You say, wow, that's really good. Except that I'm looking at this. I'm saying, now, wait a minute. So if you're on the drug from day one to the end of week 96, you don't change. But if you're on placebo for 48 weeks and then on the drug for 48 weeks, now you get a 4% benefit. So are you better off being on placebo for, are you better off not taking the drug? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? You're going to say, so 
you know, what's going on with this group that's declining? And, and again, we don't know what it means to decline, right? Does that mean that you have more of a window to see benefit? Are you regaining muscle mass or anything? We got no idea. Again, we don't see the data points. And is this driven by the fact that maybe you could imagine that at uh, 48 weeks and people are kind of bumming because they're not feeling, you know, everyone thought they were going to be Superman, right? When they got this drug, people were just like, oh, we're going to get the cure and shut down Ducks 4 and you're just going to, you know, be like uh, an Avengers and, 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 and pump up and be strong. And that doesn't happen. In fact, you know, I, people told me they thought they were hoping that, well, you're hoping, but, you know, you feel like you're going to, you're going to, maybe you get depressed, but now you're on the drug. Oh, you must be on the placebo. So now, now you're saying, okay, now I got the drug. Now you're now you're fired up because you know you got the drug. Is this the case? If these people now are exercising more, and actually this four percent is what we're seeing is actual um, increased mobility because you're actually uh, maybe you're practicing reachable workspace. Maybe you're super excited because you know you've been feeling like crap for the first forty eight weeks, but now you know you're on the drug. So now you're. I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying this is what's happening, but this is the problem with a metric like this and also the way the data is presented because you might be able to you know if you were to see this is very tight where everybody sees about a four percent increase okay then you'd say that that kind of gets taken care of right the the lifestyle changes might might make a difference whereas alternatively um maybe there's a couple of people that just went nuts man hey i'm on the drug i know i'm on the drug i'm going to the gym i don't care what they say and i'm gonna i'll, I'll blow this i'll you know i'll show them that this work you know and, uh, you know, we know from, um, you know, talking with uh, Michael and Tamara Gottlieb, you know, our first family of FSHG, uh, you know, about the nutrition and, and stuff that you can actually regain muscle mass. You can regain functionality through through usage and and, th- and, and uh, nutrition and, and just to a degree. Check out that uh, podcast if you want to check out their Facebook page. Um, so we don't know what's going on. So it was just, you know, if I, if I saw a couple of really strong responders, but everyone else was pretty much, I would have expected this to stay the same based on the, um, Lasmopamod 96 week people. You would just think that you'd decline for 10%, then it would just stay, then it would flatline out and you just have no change. I don't, this, this, this addition, um, a 4% improvement of 4% just is very suspicious because you don't see any improvement if you're on the drug for the full 96 weeks. So understanding um, the individual numbers would be really important in each individual in trial to see is this, are there, and then also to know what happened to the 17 people that appear unaccounted for. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's whatever it is, 36, maybe it's 12 people that are unaccounted for in these graphs. Are they outliers? Well, who, you know, you got to know, <laughs> you can't cherry pick your data, guys. Um, so then you go to the non-dominant arm, the non-dominant arm. Okay. So I'm right-handed. So this would be my left arm, um, would be the non-dominant arm. This actually showed a 4.6% increase. Okay. In the, um, first 48 weeks and then a 1.68% increase in the open label extension. Okay. And again, you know, even the people that are on the drug are going to, you know, the, but it's kind of weird, you know, these people, the people that are on the drug and don't know it. Um, then do worse <laughs> after they're on the open label extension. But it's still an improvement. The slopes are still going up. Um, in the non-dominant arm, again, with a weight, reachable workspace through your five <laughs> core, your five quadrants, um, is a five point, um, uh, I guess, quad, I don't know, it's probably not quadrant. It's probably whatever, quint. Anyway, you go down 5.38%, um, which is interesting. So so the, the arm that you use the most goes down 10%. The non-dominant arm goes down 5%. And then your, non, your dominant arm improves 4%. 
um, after getting on the drug when you've been on placebo, when your non-dominant arm improves 2.8%. This at least is a little, at least the graphs kind of, at least the lines look a little better in this one because you would expect that the second, you know, that the placebo, um, but again, you're not getting the initial benefit. It's just, you would expect that after you get off placebo and onto the actual drug, um, it would look the same as being on the drug for a while um, or worse because it really should look, you know, um, well, but then again, maybe you're thinking it looks better because maybe you have a bigger window. You have more, more to recover, more to get. Anyway, there's a whole lot we just don't know based on this. Okay. Um, there's, uh, I don't know. I mean, they have reach, uh, they have, I don't know. You know, it's, it's just, it's just, it is uh, hard. It's um, a little bit hard uh, to interpret without seeing the actual um, individual dots. Now, maybe, you know, I understand that they're going to simplify this for, you know, this is, um, you know, the point of this is to put it on there and raise excitement, um, make everybody excited. So you'll write checks and, and keep uh, and keep them in business. Um, you know, whatever. Nothing wrong with that, I guess. Uh and there's nothing mis. I would say, you know, I'm not saying there's anything that is um, incorrect. I mean, I'm assuming this all is absolutely correct data. And I would even argue that the claim that Lasmapamod, I would say Lasmapamod may provide meaningful benefits in some people, um, it would be a more accurate statement. But anyway, you know what? And the end result, the key is it's still trending positive, right? Nothing bad has happened so far which is another good thing. That's really important. Um, it's not a miracle drug by any stretch of the imagination. And quite honestly, um, from a scientific standpoint, my, still my interpretation of the data is I really, I really can't really interpret it. Um, other than <laughs> uh, sometimes what you don't show tells you a lot about the, the data. Um, you think that if this was real, if, if the argument that everybody showed improvement was true, I think that data would be out there. And so, uh, but then again, you know what? You're sitting at home. You're not, uh, nothing, you're not getting, you know, I, I would be doing the exercise. I'd be doing the nutrition. I mean, that seems like just personally, that's not medical advice because I can't give that, but it just seems like um, there's nothing else going on. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe, why not? All right. That's not an endorsement or not a knock on it. I will say there's other stuff coming. Um, the avidity trial will have an openly, I believe that's a 12 month trial and that is an anti-sense. So that is targeting the ducts for mRNA. Um, again, remember the lasmapamod did not meet the metric of shutting down ducts four. So it may be working through a non ducts four mechanism, which is quite possible considering it's a P38 inhibitor. We've talked about that before. Um, now the avidity trial, which is, will be similar to Dyne and Myracule and anyone else doing an anti-sense trial against ducts four. That's going to be there to eliminate the ducts for mRNA. That is truly going to, I mean, if, it's hard to imagine how that might work without shutting down ducts for lesmopamod. You can very easily imagine how it could work without shutting down ducts for. In fact, you could even imagine how to get these results without the drug working at all. Um, but uh, these other trials, that's why I'm excited about these other trials. See what's coming. Um they're truly FSHD specific drugs designed specifically for FSHD. There will be open label extensions afterwards. So if you're in the 12 months, yeah, it's going to suck if you're on placebo, I guess. 
Um, but uh, you're going to get the real thing um, a, a year later, and uh, everyone will be on it. And maybe we just need to see to compare something else. Um, God, I'm not sure what that. We're probably going to look at reachable works. I honestly don't know what their metrics are going to be. But let's hope. Um, I, I've, we've always felt in the field that if a drug's working, you'll know it. You know, you're not going to have to go through all of these statistical manipulations. And th- I mean, you know, if a drug's working, you think that you got muscular dystrophy. Think about yourself. Don't, don't you think you'd be able to, almost like the eye test, right? You'll know if the drug's working, right? I don't know if it's working or not. You know, really? <laughs> I mean, that's not the kind of, that's not the kind of life improvement we're looking for. Um, but anyway, you know what? There's the other thing about it is FSHD is slowly progressing. Um, this is two years, um, you know, looking at 96 weeks now we're out to, I'm pushing two years, right? Now I'm maybe three years. How long does it take to see a meaningful benefit? We actually don't know that. That's why the studies like the MOVE study, and some of these the natural history studies are so really important. But anyway, people have been wondering about my take on the reachable workspace. That's the data that's out there. Um, I would say, you know, there's nothing negative presented. It is signed from a scientist standpoint. It's not tremendously uh, interpretable. Uh, and it sure would be beneficial to see a lot more data points to know whether or not to see how many in the group are responding to what is expect and also to see how this, uh, where, where you start, where does it matter how much mobility and functionality you have, um, in your arms before you start this, does that matter? Right. Are there, um, are there, and I'm sure that they know that I'm sure they have the data and that may actually take into account how they're going to select people for the phase three, because, um, you want to make sure (laughs) you might engineer the study to make sure it works. Um, that we sure want to know if it truly does work. All right, so that's my thing. I'm going to grab myself a coffee, and I'll be back in a sec.
All right, you know who that was, right? That's Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, um, 1983. Um, bad reputation. You know, uh, man, I got to tell you, she she is amazing. Absolutely. You know, say the queen and the queen and king of rock and roll, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, just, you know, I, you know, from a music level, it, it takes me back to, well, actually, 1983. That was like junior high school, seventh and eighth grade. Man, you're at the skating rink at the skate parties at DeVoe Junior High School. Man, the you know most important thing was to make sure you were out in the couple skate um, when your parents came to pick you up. Um, but oh, you know, always I mean, you know, I love rock and roll. You know, oh man, blasting. Um, uh, we're <laughs> skating in those old school roller skates. And um, uh, but John, I got to tell you, one of the things I absolutely love about about um, well her music is that she's all about the music and uh you know there's actually a great documentary out on i caught on a plane actually somewhere um but there is a, a really great documentary about uh her life and one of the things that really comes out about it was you know back in the back in the early 80s there weren't a whole lot of all female groups you know or even female singers you know coming out and you know she was she was about the she wanted everything to be about her music Right. And there was kind of a controversy because, you know, what people wanted, what record execs wanted, and even some of the people evidently in the original band was, you know, basically skimpy outfits and basically look like a piece of ass or something up there. And that the image is more important than the music. And she's like, no, in fact, actually, she even had it out with some of her people um, in the band uh, because it's like, no, we are not going to be sex symbols. We are going to be musicians. We're going to be rockers. And she has become, you know, she went on and independently betting on herself when everybody said that's kind of what the song is about when everybody said uh you can't do it she bet on herself and said i'm about the music my music kicks ass and it does and and she is still going actually she came to the arena last year i was out of time on um it was last now you know it seems like last year it was probably before covid um but still touring still kicking ass no doubt um, absolutely one of the greatest rock and rollers of all time. And what I really appreciate, because it's the same as science, you know, see the way this tie in, same as science. You know, it's not about the image. Um, it's about the science, right? Get it done. You know, it's about the substance, right? And Joan Jett is about the substance, the music, the kick-ass music, the amazing um, independent voice that she has. And I just... Um, nothing but respect and, and love for, for, <laughs> boy, you know, talk about when they say, you know, people you'd like to meet in your life, Joan Jett, man, she's top of my list. I gotta tell you, maybe it's on strange, but that's actually true. Can, uh, okay. So mention the move study. So the previous podcast, we had, um, um, Allie and Kristen on from the early onset, uh, uh patient group, um, parent group, um, uh, at the FSHD society. Um, we're about information. And so just clear about the MOVE study that is called Motor Outcomes to Validate Evaluations. That's M-O-V-E in FSHD. And so the, the reason for that, well, it just gets to what we were just talking about, reachable workspace. So the original um, readout for the Redux 4 trial was a muscle biopsy um, before being on the drug and then muscle biopsy afterwards to see if you shut down Dux 4. Lasmopamop was um, shown in laboratory work to lead to um, repression of Dux4 expression. So you stop pathogenic gene expression, you're supposed to get better. They looked at Dux4 target genes. We know it's a transcription factor. They didn't, they actually didn't see any, any reduction. 
or any significant change. Some people, someone, and again, it gets to if you look at the individual data points, some people on the drug increased levels of DUX4 target gene, some decreased, some stayed the same. That's why you need to see individual um, readouts. So then, you know, reachable workspace was a secondary outcome measure in that trial, and that now it's the primary outcome measure. So the point of the MOVE study is to get better outcome measures. Um, what what are the right, what are the things that statistically, significantly, and consistently change in individuals over time with FSHD? It's a three-year trial you go in, and we just need to have better ways of testing. Because, you know, I look at this stuff that was presented, and I don't want to sound too negative, but, you know, I don't know if it's working or not. I honestly don't know if it's my, you know, I mean, I, I'm basically based on the data that's there. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's like the worst result, right? If it's not working, you see it's not working, well, then you stop the trial, you get on something else. If it is working, then great. Everyone can jump on it. But if you just don't know, and part of this is that we just don't have great um, outcome measures in FSHD. In fact, we don't even have good outcome measures in FSHD. <laughs> and so the MOVE study is trying to find some good outcome measures. Uh, there's the MOVE Plus, which involves MRI, and I believe also muscle biopsy. I got to tell you, I've seen some of the MRI data that's coming um, out of some of these things. MRI is pretty good, man. I think that that is, I think that if it's analyzed uh, properly, uh, that MRI may be a really good non-invasive metric of um, muscle health and muscle decline and um, uh, prevention of loss of muscle health. Prevention prevention of loss. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the other thing I want to make sure, because people, you know, everyone talk about that, you know, what the MOVE study does not belong to any particular foundation or anyone, you know. It is supported by the FSHD Society, Friends of FSH, FSHD Canada, um, and uh, it is supported by Avidity Biosciences, by AMRA, that's an MRI company. There, you know, um, Solve has kicked in some money into this. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of places, so, but it is, a, it is run out of um, Kansas uh, City, um, University of Kansas Medical Center is the primary place with the uh, Dr. Jeff Statland and the co-PI is Dr. Robbie Twill up at Rochester, two of the best. You know, they have sites around the country. And, um, but, you know, it's a, it's an independent study. It's supported by these foundations and other, and, and, and companies are welcome to support it. It costs a lot of money to run the trial. It's benefit to everyone in the field, but it's not anyone in particular's, uh, uh, if anyone is it belong to it, it belongs to Jeff and Ravi. Uh, <laughs> honestly, that's who, that's who study it is. All right, um, moving on. So that was, uh, and then thanks again to Ali and, and Kristen for talking about the kids and getting kids in the trial because you need to get kids into the MOVE study in order to, to get that going. All right, um, you know, interesting thing, I just made a little aside on a diagn interesting diagnostic story um, this week. You know, I had, someone had taken our FSHD um, research testing through the My FSHD Promoted, goes to the Jones Lab, My Academic Lab, and it came back uh, consistent with FSHD for this individual. And, oh, this person's got FSHD. This is through a genetic counselor. Oh, my God. You know, shout out to, to Caitlin, one of the – she's a great genetic counselor at the um, at uh, Indiana University and um, in, in Indianapolis. And um, she, um, which is, I believe it is Indianapolis, not Bloomington, but I mean, where, where she is, is Indianapolis, at least the medical center. Um, fantastic. What I like, what I really appreciate about her is she wants, like, she's like us, she's trying to solve problems and do the best you can for, for um, individuals. And, and so, you know, I returned the result and said, this is consistent with FSHD. She said, well, you know, this, they're, they're, um, this individual wanted to get into the, uh, the Lesmavimod trial, so they need to have a proper genetic test. Now, you know that our research testing does not get you into, it's not, it's not official. It's a research test, so it does not 
provide access to the lesmapamide trial or any clinical trial. Um, so I went to Athena and ordered the test because they know he's going to be positive. And it came back negative. And she's like, what? <laughs> and very polite. He's like, can you explain this? You know, and I'm like, oh, well, um, the, the few times that we've been wrong, we've had false negatives. Occasionally, we might call someone healthy who's FSH just because a borderline case. It's hard to tell. That's why you always need to confirm these. We've never called someone FSHD when they're not FSHD. We're 100% through 1,000 plus, okay? If, you, if our test says you're FSHD, you're FSHD. Um, and so I was like, whoa, okay. So I actually, I paid to have um, this individual's blood sent to uh, the University of Iowa Diagnostic Lab, best in the best in the U.S. in diagnosing FSHD. Leiden University is best in probably the world, um, but but the um, uh, Steve Moore's gang at the University of Iowa Diagnostic Lab, they are the best in the U.S. And so sent uh, had some blood sent there, and then it took like eight weeks. <laughs> it's supposed to take six weeks, four to six weeks. It took like eight weeks. I knew something was up because I'm like, you know, I mean, our test was clear that this was FSHD. And, uh, you know, there's going to be some funky genetics going on. There's going to be something, something going on that's not quite, quite right. That result finally comes back. Yep, it's FSHD1. And uh, there's an interesting thing, though. It's actually said, once again, this has happened multiple times, the bio-nano single-molecule approach that everyone's moving to couldn't identify it inconclusive. Okay, they couldn't distinguish the the because there were two um a chromosome four and a chromosome ten that were the same size, and they just they just couldn't distinguish the technology. Again, this has happened multiple times now where people have gotten negative or inconclusive results on the bio nanotechnology, and our technology sorts it out. Well, well, Steve's a good guy. He went and they had his lab do the old school southern blotting, and they were able to determine absolutely this person has um a contracted. They actually had a um. A 10 repeat? And he said, oh, 10 repeat. And yeah, but we picked up them up with methylation, so they're affected. 10 repeat and affected. Well, there's some modifiers going on there. Well, it turns out that they have um, uh, multiple short chromosomes. Okay? You know, I'll, I'll, basically all four chromosomes are kind of short. And, well, what, the result of that we're learning is that you got hypomethylation. That in itself is a modifier. And, uh, and so, again, that's why they were showed... FSHD levels of methylation by our assay and all these short chromosomes pile up on top of each other. The bio nano couldn't distinguish it. Evidently, that's what the that's what the workup uh, said. And Southern was able to figure it out because you can get rid of the tens. Um, <clears throat> anyway, another case where <laughs> and now he's got his positive result and able to try to get into the one of these trials. So so it all ended up well. But once again, it's just a case of. You know, it's uh, our test. Uh, our test is great, man. <laughs> so testing, well, nobody can beat it, man. All right. So uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about. There was some news yesterday that is pertains to all of this stuff. Uh, no, anyone caught it? It came through the AP. Some people you may you may know. So Moncol Leck uh, is a professor at uh, Yale University, and his wife Angela Leck. Uh, you might that name might sound familiar. She she was an FSHD researcher working at um, in Lou Kunkel's lab on Duchenne muscular dystrophy and also on on um, FSHD. She had a, a paper that was widely circulated about a CRISPR screen to identify pathways in FSHD for drug um, development. Um, she's now actually has left. <laughs> I would say she's left science. She might not say she left science, and now works for the Muscular Dystrophy Association of the USA. 
but um, they are rare disease lab. And I got to tell you, Michael is one of the smartest dudes I've ever met. Um, great guy. Um, and, uh, and they had developed a CRISPR therapy for um, a particular type of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, DMD. Okay, so in DMD, so the largest gene in your genome is the dystrophin gene. And um, mutations, there's just tons of different mutations lead to Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which basically could, you know, people are going to die before age 30, used to die before age 20, but there have been some improvements with some steroids and stuff. Anyway, so uh, there's a very rare mutation in this one individual. Um, his name was uh, Terry Horgan, okay? And I say was because um, word came out that he just died after being in a an N of one CRISPR trial for Duchenne that was um, engineered by um, Michael. This is not the same thing about Michael. I mean, I'm just, I think he's a brilliant person. And one of the things is that uh, Michael introduced me to the concept of N of one trials. And what this is, is um, it's a way, in some ways to get around the FDA something. If you have a very rare disease, right? How are you going to get a clinical trial if you have a mutation that you may be the only person in the world that has? And even though Duchenne is a very common disease, this is a very rare mutation. And it's not none of the therapies, exon skipping, none of the stuff that's being developed is applicable to this kid. And, and I shouldn't say kid, it's a young man and he's 27. Um, and uh, so his only option was to have a personalized therapy engineered for him. Well, he had a very unusual mutation. His mutation was um, that destroyed, deleted the promoter. This is the region that regulates expression of the dystrophin gene. And some of exon one, the very first, the very, the very beginning of the dystrophin gene was missing. And so he couldn't make dystrophin as an adult or as a, well, as a person. Um, but there is an, there, there are other ways that genes can be turned on. And so there's another exon for uh, dystrophin that's expressed very early in development while you're still in the womb um, that is on. And that was fine in him. And so what Monkle um, and Angela, what they came up with was the idea that using CRISPR activation. Now, remember us, we use CRISPR inhibition because we want to shut down Dux4. You can also, instead of putting an off switch on a gene, you can put an on switch on a gene. So they said, hey, we're going to do CRISPR activation and activate the embryonic exon 1, and this should make dystrophin. And it worked great in cell culture and in some animal models specifically designed with that, uh, with that um, thing. And so then they um, were able to work with a company. Well, I shouldn't say a company. I think it's a foundation called Cure Rare Diseases. Now, Cure Rare Disease Foundation was started um, by the brother of um, Terry Horgan. So his brother actually started this foundation with the goal of curing, his, curing him, curing his brother. That's a good brother. I think my sister would push me over the cliff. Um, but these guys were good brothers. And he basically set up this entire foundation um, called Cure Rare Diseases um, in order to help people with extremely rare um, mus you know, muscle diseases, it's really muscular dystrophy or neuromuscular diseases, um, get N of 1 clinical trials. So an N of 1, meaning it's for you. It's a personalized clinical trial for this. And um, this was, um, they did, now Now, one of the reasons some people like this is this can be done through academics, and again, Monkel and Anthony, academics at Yale. Um, you actually have a little bit different regulations than from the FDA than companies. They ask for a little bit less. And I know this, I met, I met with them to talk about doing an N of 1 trial in FSHD. I thought, well, you know, would be, be would it be possible? And you can kind of go faster and um, you need, a, honestly, a little bit less data. 
um, than the FDA would require of a large company to run a large clinical trial to do so. Now, on the other hand, you also make a case with the individual in the end of one trial to say, I mean, I'm going to die without this, right? So the FDA looks at that a little bit differently, right? They're going to say, okay, I don't have any other options. There's nothing else on the on the horizon. It's this or nothing. So, you know, you might think of this almost like you're a cancer patient, right? I'm going to die. I'll take an experimental treatment because, hey, I'm going to die anyway. So if this gives, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's it's just a different, it's a different situation. So in FSHD, of course, we don't really, well, some of you might say that you got that going on. You have that you've reached that point. And those are actually some of the people we we're thinking about, people that are very affected in FSHD to the point where quality of life is so bad that some of you might be saying, I'll, I'll roll the dice. And um, if I die, I die. If I'm cured, I'm cured. But I'm just sick of going down the path I'm going. I, that's how I thought maybe an NF1 trial might be good. Anyway, I met with these guys um, and talked about it, and we decided not to do it. Um, it's also much cheaper, and it's just a way to go. Anyway, so this was carried out at um, University of Massachusetts Medical School. I guess they now call it the Chan, UMass Chan Medical School or whatever. That's where we were in Worcester. Um, you know, Terry's brother um, arranged all the funding. And uh, they had this CRISPR, or CRISPR activation um, gene therapy. And it was just reported on Friday um, that, uh, that Terry died. Um, and it says uh, they're trying to work to understand what happened. And it could take months to get, and nobody's talking, nobody's saying anything, nobody's responding to phone calls, nobody's doing anything. But this is actually a big deal because this was the very first clinical trial for this new, for this version of. CRISPR to turn on um, a, uh, a you know a backup copy of the gene, and if it had worked, you might say, "Hey, if this works, maybe you know CRISPR activation for Duchenne could work for a bunch of different mutations." You know, it's just kind of proof of concept. Everyone can benefit if it works. Now the question is, is everyone going to suffer because it didn't work? Now, of course, you no, know, Terry. I mean, when I tell you guys you go into a clinical trial, you're a guinea pig. You, you know, you are. You, I mean, there's no guarantees, and gene therapies, you know, it's got more concerns than others. But, but this is why it takes so long to get things, especially the more complicated the therapy, into the clinic because this is we don't want this to happen. Now, we actually don't know. Um, it says that um, they did, you know, this was in development since 2019. And I know that that's the case because that's, well, I've been aware. Um, and uh, he had to go ahead to administer the therapy um, in the summer. Um and in, in says in August, uh, they announced um, that he will soon get the treatment, but no, but no one actually, honestly, no one even knows if he actually got the treatment. There's just there's a silence around this. Um, but it's all over the news that this, it's believed that, um, now that what can go wrong? It's believed that he had the treatment. We don't know for 100%, but it's epigenome editing, right? This is, remember, this is actually what Epic Bio's entire company is based on. Epigenome editing, turning genes on, turning genes off, that type of thing. Um, you know, my other hat at Renogenics, we are CRISPR inhibition. We want to turn things off. We think turning things off is much safer than turning things on, I got to tell you. But one thing I can tell you from being somewhat in the business, you know, we have our CRISPR goddess and we're CRISPR lab. Um, we think about this, you know, people that are asking, when's this coming to clinic? You know, we're not just sitting around. Um there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So what can go wrong? Well, first off, you need to have um, immunosuppression regimen before you get, this is going to be delivered through adeno-associated virus AAV to deliver the payload um, up for gene therapy. We have this up on the MyFSHD website. You can look into therapeutics on the website. You know, if you want to get in and see something, we actually cover how gene therapy works. 
um, under on the MyFSHD website. You can see what I'm talking about. Adeno-associated virus is a is a virus that um, it can be engineered to deliver um, up to 4,400 bases of DNA, so a pretty small amount. But you, we've been able to get the CRISPR machine in there. Um, but you need to go under immunosuppression before this because it is a virus and you might have pre-existing antibodies. You probably get screened for pre-existing antibodies. And then you have one shot to put in a whole bunch of this virus carrying the therapeutic. And it goes systemically in your body. You don't get two chances at it because you're going to develop an immune resistance, just like a vaccine. You get the COVID vaccine, you get a flu shot, you get whatever. The whole point of that is to develop an immune response so you fight off the next infection. Well, in gene therapy... You develop an immune response to the delivery mechanism, so you can't get a second dose of gene therapy. So you do it at once. Now, one of the issues is with an N of one trial, you got one dose. So you have to pick a dose. So how much did they put in? We don't know. Um, but we do know that some patients in the myotubular myopathy trial died because of viral dosing overload that affected their liver. So you pick a dose and you roll the dice and hope because if it's too low a dose, you don't get meaningful benefit. If it's too high a dose, you might kill someone. This is why we are very careful on trial. This is why we've made our mini pig model for FSHD. Um, large animal models to sort all this out before you go into a person, okay? Yeah, you know, we don't know what happened, but um, so what else can happen? Well, after um, you get success, maybe maybe get successful infection, you get monitored, everything's going fine. Now you get expression of your CRISPR machine. In this case, it's a CRISPR activation machine. In FSHD, it would be a CRISPR repression machine. And so um, what can happen? Well, that should turn on the dystrophin gene. Well, I got to tell you, when you what we have learned in our lab studying this for, well, let's see, we, we came up with it in 2014. So for eight years, we have been looking at all the things that and, and managing and manipulating and optimizing our CRISPR inhibition to eliminate all the things that we see that can go wrong so that we only shut off the DUX4 gene, right? Um, what have we learned? We have learned that if you just put um, some of these regulators in cells, um, they can do a lot of things that you don't expect them to do. You basically are putting something into a cell that's not supposed to be there, and it has a function. This function could be, like I said, to activate, to repress, to methylate, to, I mean, there's, <laughs> to, um, to cut, to anything. So you're going to have this thing sitting around. Once it does its thing, once it's shut off or turned on, in this case, once it's turned on, the you know, so you have, you have 10 to the 13th cells in your body. Think about that. That's a lot, right? What what if 1%? Well, 1% is a lot of cells. <laughs> 10 to 11, you know, say, so yeah, it's, it's 20 cells, 50. No, it's like millions, billions of cells is 1%, right? So very, very small number of adverse, a very low percentage of adverse events could be catastrophic. And we don't know, again, we don't know what the situation is because everyone's being quiet. No one's evidently returning calls from the AP. All we know is this young man died. Um, uh, he was presumably actually had the, had the trial going, but we don't know. And we need to know because there's a whole world awaiting CRISPR therapies wondering what the hell happened. I mean, well, I mean, you got to tell us, right? Again, it gets back to what we were talking about. Almost sometimes what you don't tell people tells you enough of a lot about what's going on. Because it was a case, you know, frankly, if he if he never got the CRISPR therapy, that'd be the first damn thing I'd put out there. Hey, don't worry, no, not the CRISPR work. <laughs> you know, he didn't. Oh, okay, well, I'm not saying that. Um, 
oh, you know, it was a response to the viral dosing. We hit him with the virus, we injected it, and boy, he just crashed because of pre-existing. You know, I, again, that's something you can deal with in gene therapy. And of course, that would be great negligent because that is something that should never happen in this day and age, and I don't think it will. Um, so that's not the case. So so we don't know. So we can all, we're left now wondering, people like me getting out and saying, what the hell, what happened? Well, I, all the things I can think of are that there's some adverse event. You're activating something you don't want to activate um, that caused something catastrophic. Now, I don't know if that's the case. They're going to find out, and we'll, we'll hear about this. They said four or five months to figure it out. Meanwhile, the whole CRISPR world's kind of waiting to see what's going on. But this is why, um, I got to tell you, uh, the way we do things and the way I've been disappointed in biotech and pharma is, you know, you can't set uh, at time points. This needs to be done by this date. We go to clinic on this date. You know, because what you have to have is um, metrics of success. We will go to clinic when we've met these safety and efficacy standards that are intense. Okay. It's not a time pressure. It's a science pressure. Science has to drive um, your, your, your therapeutic to clinic, not money, not, not pleasing your venture caps that are behind you, not pleasing parents that are begging you or even patients, right? Because, you know, if you skip some steps, you go fast, you overlook some data, you just, ah, well, we probably don't need, you know, we, we are painfully cautious. That's why when I see companies come out and say, we will be in clinic, you know, we're in pre, pre-clinical development, yet they're telling you when they're going to be in clinic. Um, you know, actually, not, not only did I just kind of chuckle in FSHD, but you got we actually legitimately get concerned. I've actually seen, I got, you know, our CRISPR goddess cruise, I've seen her crying, literally crying because she was afraid somebody was going to hurt themselves pushing for a clinical trial and saying, this is just going to be bad. They don't know. You got to do the safety things. I mean, she cares so much. Um, that people, you know, I know people are desperate, but you got to do the science. The science has to drive it. So I don't know. I, I don't know if, what the science behind this. Um, I know they had proof of concept in cells and animal models. I don't know what happened. Um, but on the other hand, I would say, you know, Duchenne is not FSHD. There are a lot of underlying conditions in people with Duchenne that are not in FSHD. Um, Duchenne, you have to hit the heart. FSHD, you don't. Duchenne, you actually have dystrophin in, in neural tissues. You don't have problems like that in FSHD. So there's a whole, you know, the the whole lot of things that are different. So um, until we know, I'm not that, you know, some people have been like, people like emailing me this last night. Oh my God, oh my God, people are freaking out. CRISPR, you guys, you know, CRISPR is dead. No, it's not. You know what? Again, I guarantee you, speaking for ourselves, CRISPR inhibition will be done right. And every single T is crossed and I is dotted. And we have thought for years about all the things that have gone on. And we have enough experience that we, we know more than anybody what can go on and go bad and go sideways in FSHD. And we mitigate those. Um, we don't, it, it, anyway. And honestly, if we don't feel it's going to be um, safe and efficacious, it ain't going to clinic. That's just the bottom line. The science is driving it, not money, not um, at least in our development. I can only speak for ourselves. That's putting on my academic and industry hat. Um, together, um, science is driving it, man. Science is driving. That's why it matters who funds you. That's why it matters who you partner with. That's why it matters um, who you're responsive to, um, no matter what your modality is that you're working on. Anyway, so you can check it out. Um, you can check out uh, CRISPR activation, DMD death. You'll find a ton of articles across the web on this about this young man. Um, and I still think, you know, that all being said, this didn't work out. Um, 
you know, God bless his brother setting this whole foundation up, trying to have, again, you know, drives me nuts, man. I see you know, people call it, you know, they say, ah, oh, don't tell us I'm an inspiration. Don't tell us we're an inspiration. We're just, you know, I don't care. Some people are inspirations, you know, I mean, you know, you know, people, you got to move the needle to get therapy. And I really just, um, you know, more, all the kudos in the world for people that are trying to do it. They actually even, you know, again, Monko and Angela pushing this through in the end of one trial. Um, I guarantee you, they thought it was going to be safe. Um, and everything was, I don't know, again, don't know what went wrong, but, um, uh, it's just, you know, that's the risk. I, I, I want to know. I'm just disappointed that, um, nothing's coming out. All I'm only disappointed is that nothing's coming out. Um, but again, you know, pushing it, I thought N of one, uh, pushing that for this, this young man who had no other option was, um, was great actually. Uh, you know, he was going to be, he was going to die in a few years anyway. So at least they, at least they tried it, right. They tried something. I just hope that, um, everything was done, done. Um, well, the FDA had signed off on it. So, you know, whatever the package was, and when the FDA was uh, said that they had done, done the things, I guess, from my perspective, working in CRISPR inhibition, we are sometimes surprised by what we find when we really, really dig deep and, um, and we are mitigating and we, we take every effort to, to mitigate these, these potentially adverse effects anyway. Um, but you can see that. So, so don't freak out. I guess the story is, you know, yeah, gene therapy death, um, 20, 30 years ago, um, uh, there was a gene therapy death that set the field back, uh, 20 years. <laughs> um, MTM has had a few gene therapy deaths. Again, that is due to um, liver targeting. And uh, no, then just finally bring it in. There are these new um, new vectors, you know, that uh, Sharif um, had been on. He made some myo-AVs. Well, um, uh, Dirk Grimm in, in Heidelberg three years ago made AV myo, did the same thing. Um, three years before Sharif, but wasn't in the New York Times. Um, and his stuff seems to be just as good, at least from our perspective. Um, detargets the liver. It's going to make gene therapy much safer for neuromuscular disease. You can really drop the viral dose. One of the things I'm curious about this Duchenne trial that was just went on, what was the viral capsid? Um, was it RH74 or AAV9? And what does that mean? Those are ones that are known to have very high viral loads, and those have been associated with some of the other problems due to high viral load. Um, myo AV and AAV myo, <laughs> Sharif's or Dirk's, um, uh, are going to greatly reduce the viral load and make it so much safer. It's going to greatly reduce the off-target effect. And then in FSHD, you know, again, we, we only have to worry about skeletal muscle, not other tissues. And so that also is going to be safer. So CRISPR, inhibition and FSHD, if done correctly, I believe is still going to be much safer even than this. And again, not saying it wasn't done correctly. Um, I'm just saying that I still believe that if you care very careful scientifically and you are not pushed by um, investment deadlines or financial deadlines or arbitrary time deadlines, um, and you can really let the science drive um, the program, that um, CRISPR can be brought safely to clinic, in my opinion. And of course, you, maybe you're saying I'm biased because that's what we're working on. But you know what? We're also first and foremost, we are in the FSHD community and we're going to make damn sure everything is, is safe and efficacious. Um, do no harm. All right. So um, so the <laughs> CRISPR is not dead. Don't worry. It is it is it is it is going OK. And um, we're going to find out what we're going to find out what happened. But that's all over the news. And I think it's real important for scientists to 
keep the lines of communication open and answer. Yeah, you don't know what's going on, but you might be able to say, we don't know what happened, but here's what did. You, you know, actually, you know, it actually, you know, it sounded like it sounded like he died yesterday. It's reported that he died yesterday. He died a month ago. They reported that died. So they've had a month to figure out. So at least where in the process did he actually even get the, I don't know. There's so many things. There's so many questions. It's so important. Again, the whole world. Anyway, so that's why we're here, right? That's one of the things we do is um, we want to have open lines of communication uh, with the community. You guys, you all are the, uh, the people that um, this is, we're, you know, that's the true stakeholders. Everyone thinks of the, I hate, you know, I, I hate the term stakeholders, but I guess that is the right term. Stakeholders. You are the stakeholders. Um Anyway, so uh, so what's going? So what you know? I've had some questions. People have asked, uh, um, "What about uh, you know? When are we going to hear about these things? How are we going to find out?" Let me tell you something. Just any trials or anything. First off, clinicaltrials.gov is gonna. You can always go there anytime and see what's going on. Trials are posted um, well before they start. You can see all the places to go to sign up if you're going to have it in your area. What are the inclusion exclusion criteria? It's all going to be there. Now, you're not going to be surprised. Let me tell you, you're not going to be surprised. But I guarantee we are going to talk about every. We talk about everything. I may not always be the first. Um, I got another. I don't have an army of people looking for things for me. Actually, I do have an army of people. All of you all. All of you all are out there looking for me. I do appreciate, you know, actually, I do appreciate um, when you all send me information. Say, hey, did you see this? Did you see that? Um, you know, I see a lot, but I don't, you know, there's a lot I don't see. And you guys are everywhere. And also it tells me that you all feel it's important or maybe you have questions about it. And that's, again, with this uh, with this um, CRISPR trial is a good case. But this happens a number of times. People find stuff in the news. I'm happy to explain it or tell you that it's uh, not relevant or whatever. So always always feel free to contact us. And um, well, you're going to hear about everything important here um, in enough time. Don't you worry. We'll let you know what trials are coming. What are the results? And then we're going to interpret the data. If I see more data on that um, fulcrum open label extension, I will let you know. I'm looking for it. And if someone else sees it, send it to me. Actually, someone did send me that, actually, again, because I, you know, someone sent me that data. And so I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate all the all the kind words as well. You know, oh, you know, big shout out to my friend Wolf. Um, hey, and um, you guys, uh, Frankfurt advanced in the Champions League. Who knew? Boy, after three games, they were in last play. They ended up advancing to the round of 16. Congrats. That's my adopted team over there in the Bundesliga. Um, Arsenal still up top in uh, the Premier League in November. Words I thought I'd never say. Um, uh, well, I haven't, actually haven't said since the mid-2000s when uh, it was uh, Wenger versus Fergie. Um but I appreciate hearing from everybody. Katie, thanks for the nice note from New Zealand. Um, and uh, always, always appreciate getting notes from Caroline up in uh, Canada and um, hearing from Rich and Vera and everybody and uh, um, Scott and Jan and um, and uh, Kate, of course, over in the UK. Always, always good to hear from everybody. I'm doing a lot of Zoom meetings lately and um, trying to catch up with more people. Um, and remember, if you have questions, I'm always happy to answer. The best part of my day is Zooming with people all around the world. And uh, I got nothing else, nothing better to do. <laughs> I don't got a life. <laughs> Actually, I got a great life. But this is what it is. And it's just true. I always have, always happy to get up. If you're in Australia, South Africa, um, India, I'm having trouble connecting with my friend in India. We just keep missing each other. We're like 12.5 hours off. It's just, it just ain't working out. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up. Wherever you are in the world, um, I'm always happy. Ricardo, the gang, we'll get you hooked up with the move study. Don't worry. Um, 
and uh yeah you know what just let me know i want i love he obviously i like talking <laughs> and Taka goes very appreciative the more i talk to you guys the less she's got to hear when i get off this thing i have a nice quiet having a nice quiet saturday morning right now <laughs> anyway all right man we're gonna catch i i got us um you know uh i got a special guest coming on midweek midweek i'm gonna have um mariam faruqi she's one of my people i'm gonna have her on i just thought it would be kind of interesting to start to meet some of the people doing the work for those of you who haven't had a chance to come to the lab but i just have yeah more of a sit down just just chat with her um about her journey from uh from pakistan to the u.s and how she got involved in our lab and fshd research um and uh just a fantastic individual um and uh great researcher and uh yeah well you know i um (laughs) complicated situation but i feel all these people kind of as my kids and um and uh, it's great to see them grow and become wonderful scientists and so mariam will be on midweek um for kind of a sit down and we'll we'll talk about what's going on you know, a little bit, you know, there's some FSHD and, and stuff in there and what we're doing, but you know, some of it's just kind of getting to know the people that uh, care so much about their work and are trying to get things done for the community. And I got some researchers. I got Bob Locke said he'll join me. He's an inventor of the human xenograft model. He's going to come on um, as well. And I got Dan Perez. Um, he's going to come on and join me too. So, you know, we got to, we're going to have a mixed bag of people always, and we'll bring our CRISPR goddess on as well. Um, I got to get her to talk about her book. Don't forget, um, CRISPR Evolution by uh, Carice Jones, um, who is our CRISPR goddess, and she is. Uh, uh, it's a fantastic book about a little science family, and so there's some whole whole lot of real science and some science fiction mixed in there with a great human interest story. You know, my mom was looking at that, and she's like, she's like, yeah, I think the science is going to be too much above me. No, it's just it's just real science, but you don't need to understand the science. Um, although she does a good job, it's really more about um, uh, <laughs> government overreach um, and trying to do trying to do science, trying to do the right thing. And sometimes the the the, the road to hell is bad, paved with good intentions. I don't know. Check it, check it out. CRISPR evolution. It's a really cool story. Great family. And you might find some uh, some similarity. Yeah, she says there's not, nobody similar to anybody we know, but I don't know if I buy that. All right. Hope you all have a really good weekend. Um, you know what? Uh, um, I'm going to give you a, uh, um, uh, you know what? I haven't done it in a while. got to give a shout out to my kiddo, Jenny up in Portland, you know, still love you. Um, you know, I know things are busy, things are going on, but, uh, you know, hope things are going well. We'll catch up sometime. All right. So I'm going to head on out to the backyard, dig up the mayonnaise jar and grab a hundred dollar bill and head to the grocery store. See if I can get a gallon of milk, maybe some eggs <laughs> if they have any. Um, <laughs> because inflation is a conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> I suppose it is if uh, you're a politician that hasn't been to a grocery store in uh, 45 years, or if you're a, a so-called journalist that uh, has a very limited vocabulary and really doesn't have a freaking clue what's going on. Okay. Um, uh, read out. <laughs> Anyway, all right. We love our our independence. We love our freedom, and we love being, um, especially our freedom of speech, and be able to, and our freedom to educate y'all on the science of FSHD and what's going on, so you can make your own decisions and um, inform choices. All right. You know, another thing we love, Jaeger. And, you know, right up there, he's going to be the next Joan Jett. I don't know. Um, you know, rock on, man. Bring us home.